This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I am your host, Cap Times food editor, Lindsay Christians. Today, I'm excited to be presenting a podcast that we recorded live at Cap Times Idea Fest last weekend at the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. We're going to give you a conversation that I had with Ye Vang in the play circle. Ye drove down from a food truck he operates outside Sociable Cider Works in northeast Minneapolis, It's a residency he affectionately calls his mud and straw location. We talked about reconciling Yia's Hmong roots with his high school years in the upper Midwest, how his refugee parents feel about his cooking career, and the messages he wants to send through sticky rice, pork, and hot sauce. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Yia Vang. Cheers! Hello! Welcome to The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison produced by the Capital Times. That's my intro that I always do, and I absolutely love it. Uh, That music, by the way, was composed by my wonderful husband, Patrick Christians, and I get to say his name at the end of every podcast, which is also wonderful. I am so happy today to have you bang with me. Thank you so much for coming down. Thanks for having me. Um, I have a little intro for you here, if that's okay. I'll read you you a little intro. Yue Vang is my fantastic guest today. He's a Hmong chef from Union Hmong Kitchen in Minneapolis, which is in residency at Sociable Cider Works in northeast Minneapolis. He was born in Thailand, raised partially in Pennsylvania and partially in northern Wisconsin. Um, moved to U.S. as a kid, came to rural Wisconsin, went to high school here. He has been increasingly visible these past few years as an advocate for Hmong food, which he says is not a type of food. It's a philosophy of food, which I love. Uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, for context, has the largest percentage of Hmong residents of any city in the U.S. and the second largest population overall after California. So welcome. Thanks. So we were saying actually uh, a few minutes ago that when you drive over the border into Wisconsin, it feels like coming home a little bit. Yeah, look, uh, I'm a Wisconsin kid at heart. Like, um, you know, I went to school at UW-Lacrosse. Like did my undergrad there. Um, I, you know, grew up in central Wisconsin, a little small town called Port Edwards, Wisconsin. Um, you know, it's a paper mill town. You know, um, so it always like smell funky sometimes because of the yeah. paper mill. <laughs> there were actually shirts you could get from the w- local Walmart that said, "Does somebody fart or are we in Port Edwards?" Oh my god! Like, yeah, so that's some town pride. Yeah, right there. I mean, it, it was. I mean, and and uh, I'm, you know, like a, like a, like I tell people, like I am a Wisconsin boy at heart. Like that's my that's my jam. You know, but like living up in the Twin Cities and like I'm a Packer fan. I love watching the Badgers. You know, like you know I'm a Brewers fan. So so growing up in the it, living up, you know, living in the cities, it's like you kind of have to closet all those you know yeah and just like keep it on my phone and i can't let anybody see like i'm actually checking <laughs> the badger score not you know not the, not the gophers and stuff like that yeah i have spent the, a lot of these past couple of weeks uh, sort of studying up on the work that you've been doing recently because it's just been getting more and more over these past few years which is really cool um but one of the things i was thinking about is how how Hmong food is sort of might be different, for example, in California, where there's a large Hmong population than it is in the upper Midwest. And you've said before that Hmong food, you know, it's a philosophy rather than an actual, like, very specific kind of cuisine. But, you know, if you have to sort of 
put parameters around it in some ways. How do you think the Hmong food, say, of the upper Midwest is, is different than in California? Yeah, um, I really think that, you know, yeah, I, I you just call it like the northern, you know, northern style, you know, uh, Hmong food. I really think that it's um, a lot of it is uh, root based, like, you know, you would in any kind of Norwegian Swiss family, a lot of root based. Uh, there's also um, there's also, a, you know, heavy, I mean, you know, heavy, heavy pork, you know, that's, you know, heavy pork and uh, a lot of like uh, whole chickens. Uh, so it's like pork and chicken, and then really, uh, I, I don't know about other family, but my, especially with my my parents, uh, it's um, the 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 two proteins my dad loved using is goat and um, and like different kinds of whitefish. So so it it's really about what's around us that we get to use. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, a lot of people would always be like, "Oh, like what's mung food?" And I think that that's a question I got as a cook growing up, like, "What's mung food?" and I always tell people that a lot of times when people ask you what Hmong food is, a lot of Hmong kids, uh, it's, I tell people it's kind of like an awkward middle school dance. You know, you're like, you don't know where you're putting your hands. And you're like, uh, you know. Um, and that's how, that's how it was for a long time even. And, um, and I think that that line, was a good friend of mine, Mike, who helped me kind of, uh, he majored in linguistics in college. And so he's a lot smarter than me, but he helped me put that together. And he, one day we were talking through, and Mike's like, dude, like from the sounds of everything, it seems like Hmong food isn't a type of food, but it's a philosophy of food. It's a way of thinking about food. And once that hit, I think that that opened the doors for me a lot to think through, like, oh, my gosh. Like, if you look at regionally, like, you know, there, there's a small group of Hmong people that live down in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, um, the way that they use ingredients and stuff down there is totally different than, the, you know, the Hmong people that live on Fresno or Sacramento or the Hmong people that live in Portland. You know, there, there's something that connects us all but the produce and the product changes. And I think that no matter how much the produce and the product does change, it's still Hmong food. And so I think that that's one thing that we really want to try to portray. And I think we get a lot of pushback from what I call um, the hardliners, you know, like the Hmong hardliners where they're like, you can only use this kind of knife, you can only use this kind of, you know, board, and then you have to be, it has to be done this way and done this way. And um, so, so we get some pushback from that, um, but I don't know, you know, it's, it is what it is and, you know, however they want to put it and, but I, I, you know, I stick true to what we do and we, we feel that, you know, what we do is, what we do is, uh, it's right and, and we get to tell the story. Yeah. Uh, speaking of telling stories, I wonder how this journey that you've been on with uh, kind of bringing Hmong food to a larger public, mm -hmm. how has it helped you deepen your understanding of your own family history? Yeah, so um, so I'll be really real. Like, as a kid growing up, as, so as a Hmong kid growing up in central Wisconsin where it's predominantly white, like, it's like Chevy or Ford pickup trucks, you know? <laughs> um, you know, either after, so for where I grew up, and I'm going to be real, it's like, when you got done with high school, you either go to the local tech school or you went to one of the, you know, like UW, or sorry, you went to like UW Stevens Point or you went to one of those, <clears throat> one of the local schools there on there. And then you ended up either in the plant, there's a, there was a chemical plant, a big chemical company there. And there was a huge, um, there was like three paper companies there. You end up there, you know, or, or you get like a tech degree and you, you end up working in a garage somewhere. Mm. So, so growing up, it was like, Man, I knew I was different. You know, before that, we lived out in uh, we we lived out in uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's Amish Mennonite, and then you know the people mm. that lived out there. So I grew up going in predominantly white school, and the white kids would come up to us and be like, 
hey, like, you don't look like the Amish kids. You don't look like the Mennonite kids. You don't look like the, like, the Dutch kids. What are you? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. The kids are mean, you know? They're horrible. And uh, so, like, growing up, I'd be like, oh, I don't know where I belong, you know? And, and so you, you want to keep everything, like, as a growing up in, like, middle school, elementary school, middle school, high school, you just want to be normal. Yeah. Like, like, you yeah. just want to be, like, I don't want to be. So as a kid growing up, you, uh, my mom would pack lunch for us. And, and you know, she, she, she'd do her best in, in packing what she had. So it'd be, like, grilled chicken, rice you know, some of her hot sauce and different things. And, and, and it had all that, like, funky, like, fish, oyster sauce kind of smell to it. And, again, like, kids are mean, man. Like, I remember the first time I brought some stuff to school, and the kids are all like, oh. Like, I was already the weird-looking kid. Now I was, like, the weird-looking kid bringing the weird-looking food that smelled weird, you know? And so, like, I would beg my mom, just, like, let me eat school lunch. And that's where I fell in love with school lunch. Like, I didn't eat school lunch because it was great. I ate school lunch because, like, I was normal. So it's like, the, you know, the, the rectangle pizza, you know, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, like Lunchables, like that's all oh I ever Oh my wanted. God, like Lunchables. Lunchables. Yeah, the pizza Lunchable where you can put it in the microwave. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to be that kid. I just wanted to be normal. Um, and, I, and I hated it. Like it was so embarrassing for me. And so like I would never, I remember one time I brought lunch to school and I threw it away. Like before, because I, I didn't want, I was like, I can't do it anymore. So I threw it away, and like, you know, my mom's like, hey, where's all like the Tupperware and everything I put it on? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Oh, I you like, threw the whole thing oh, yeah, away. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. And I remember like, that was like one of my first distinct lie. I just, my, my mom, like, I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I, can't, I can't find it, you know, because I just like, I didn't want to be made fun of it. I wanted to be normal. Um, and, and so that was the start of it. So, so when I got into cooking, um, like I tell people, like, I didn't get into cooking because like, I liked it. It was it was a job. You know, it was just mm-hmm. a job. I was a high school kid. It was a job. I was I'm not really like I tell people like I wasn't a good cook. I was just fast enough to keep up with everybody. And then in college, it was uh, again, it was a restaurant job, right? So, you know, you're working your way through college. One of the things uh that I was deep like I you know, um I didn't you know, I didn't smoke, drink, do drugs. So I I, I would always just show up on time at work. Ah. And all the other like all the other cooks never did. And so my chef liked me because I was just dependable. <laughs> he was just like he just knew that on Saturday at like, you know, uh, was it like noon or one o'clock, which we our shift started, like, oh yeah's gonna be here. Ah. And the other guys like roll in at four, like like hungover, high, whatever, you know. And he was just like, he just knew like, oh, he's dependable. Which I was like, wait a minute, they still have a job and they don't show up on time? And like, you know? So, um, so I, that's, that's how it got started with me cooking. And, and I, I hated, hated restaurant uh, cooking. And my whole goal was to get out of it. And I tell, I tell a lot of people this. I said, it's like, it's like, it's like, that, um, it's like that love-hate relationship you have. It's like that girlfriend. For me, it was like that girlfriend you broke up with every summer. And you're like, I'm never going <laughs> to, like, we're not ever getting back together. But then like by the end of the summer, you get back together. And then, like, you leave for school, you're like, I don't know. And then, you know, come around Christmas break, you give her, like, a Facebook poke or something like that. And, you know, it's, so that's how cooking was. It was Why like, can't I quit you? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like rather one of those. It's like, I left, and then it's like, oh, I found my way somehow back into the kitchen. Um, but I never wanted to cook, quote, unquote, Asian food. I never wanted mm, to do that. Mm. I, I just felt like, man, I, I've been trying my whole life to stay away from this stuff. And every time everybody found out I was bong in the kitchen, they'd be like, dude, like, we love egg rolls. We love like mung sausage. We love sticky rice. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know. And so the first few restaurants I worked at was I worked at an Italian restaurant. I worked at a uh, like a 
uh, like a barbecue place, barbecue smokehouse. Uh, I worked at a, um, a French restaurant. Like, like, so it was very like a lot of it was very French based. You worked for Kevin Casen at one point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was it was really it was an honor. It was really cool, you know. And 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 working in all these different restaurants, it was like I didn't want to touch this. And I think that you know it's funny because as you're older, you realize like the more you run from something, it's like a circle. You end up running oh, back to it. Yeah. So I found that my soul was revived when I would go home and eat these simple meals with my mom and dad. So one of the things like I tell people is like, when I eat with mom and dad, like they still do it. Like they're in their mid-60s, you know, they, they're retired. They still do it. When we eat together, they still take all, like if, like if there's meat on the bone, my dad would still pluck out, like what, he would cut off all the good prime cuts. And he would eat the bones. And he would make sure that we, all as the kids, we, like, he did that for us when we were kids. He still does it to his grandkids. Like, he still does it now. I'm I'm 35, and he still does that. And he (laughs) wants to make sure that I have the best. And I remember one time we were eating, and and, uh, my, my, I I love it. Like, you know, braised pork neck with, you know, like, mustard greens and stuff like that. Like, that's the stuff I love. And that's the stuff that rejuvenates my soul. So, like, I remember I'm eating that. We're at at their place, and I'm eating that. And my mom's like, no, 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 don't eat that. It's like, I have the better stuff over here. And I was just like, in that moment, I stopped. And I was like, Mom, like, this is, like, the stuff that's, like, I love. And she's like, oh, no, that's, like, the stuff your dad and I will eat. And still, like, at, like, we're adults. They're still living that self-sacrifice life for us, you know. And so I, by doing, in those moments, it just really changed the way I, I, I thought about food. And I remember I was like, man, like, where do I go next? And I think that after working, um, uh, you know, all these different kitchens, I was like, you know, let's, let's try a pop-up. Mm. At that point, pop-ups were kind of sexy. Like, it was like a cool, sexy word. I was like, pop-up, pop-up, you know. Uh, nobody knew what it was yet, you know. Uh, so we, we did a pop-up at uh, our friend Eddie has a, a restaurant. Uh, he, it's a breakfast and lunch place only, and so we, that's where we did it. Uh, we didn't, I don't know how many people were coming. We literally had three, I had 350, uh, 350 bucks. And I'm like, I'm going to use this to buy ingredients. <laughs> and my goal was to get that back. I'm like, if we can make this 350 back, I think we're good. Like, it was like, if we can break even, this is good. And we were really blessed that night. I remember it was February 2nd. And I remember it was super cold. I was like, oh, I don't know if anyone's coming. Um, uh, his, he's got a small kind of diner. So it only fit like 47-ish people. Cook St. Paul? Yeah, Cook yeah. St. Paul. Yeah, and, and it's like a tight 47. It's like squeezed in 47. Mm-hmm. And I think we did like 220 covers. Oh, my goodness. Did you night. run out? What's up? Did you run out? Oh, we ran out. And then we like, I call it, <laughs> I call it MacGyvering. Like we MacGyvered a few different things. We're like, we ran out of stuff. And we're like, okay. And then Eddie's like, I got French fries. I'm like, okay, let's figure something out. You know, like, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. And so when we were done, it was, it was such a hard night. I said to myself, I don't know if I want to do this again. Mm. And so we waited and next month. We did another one. It went a little, you know, just as good. And then. And then we kind of just started doing pop-ups, and it was super janky. Um, half the stuff was in my car, half the other stuff was in my, in my. So it's like I would always ride with a um, with a Vitamix in the back of my car. So if you guys ever needed a Vitamix, it was I had a box, I had a kit with a Vitamix. It had it had uh, tongs, knives, you know, <laughs> like a- anything you wanted. Like we had a kitchen in the back of my car, and then. Yeah, it's like, like knife that. roll plus. Like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was like, I think one point we, I carried my dehydrator for a while. Oh, my God. And people were like, what's that? I was like, oh, it's the dehydrator. We'll just have to. And, and I still do that now. Just you know? in the trunk. 
you yeah, know, yeah, you got yeah. an extra. So that's how I got started. It was like th- f- almost four years ago. Yeah. And how are your parents with having these like photographers and video people in their house? Because like they go into their house. Yeah, yeah. How I, like do they talk about like? Did you yeah, have to talk you know, them into it? Like you know, you hear something super funny. I think that it's very humbling to be around my parents. Ah. It's very humbling. So for example, like um, my mom. Uh, my mom makes this hot sauce she does for us every year. Uh, she makes batch. It's like 100 gallons she makes a year. Uh, it takes her a, a week to make it. It's really amazing. And it's pretty kind of well-known now. It's, you know, in the cooking world, if you want something to be uh, like to sell, you got to give it like a cool name, like a sexy name. Uh, we couldn't figure out one, so we just call it Mama Vang's Hot Sauce. And it's just, it works, I guess. Uh, but she, she makes this hot sauce. And, and a few of my buddies, I've, I've been very blessed to be able to get to know a lot of like pretty well-known, nationally recognized chefs. Yeah. And um, uh, Jorge Guzman is, is one of them, you know, James Beard guy, you know, food mm-hmm. and wine, uh, best chef kind of guy. And so I, mean, I gave some to, to Jorge and he was like, man, this is like the best thing I've ever eaten. He's like, this is so good, you know. Um, and and I, I mean, and a few of, you know, my other chef buddies, you know, did that. And I ran home and I told my mom, I'm like, mom, like, you know, these guys are like, you know, like nationally renowned chefs, they love your hot sauce. She's like, oh, that's nice, you know. <laughs> it's like, well, if they want some, honey, just make sure they get some, you know. It's like very humbling to be like, it doesn't deter her, you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't make her feel like, well, look, like my sauce is being eaten by so-and-so, you know. Like, the same thing with my dad, you know. We, 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 uh, we won this uh, sausage contest with the re- Hmong sausage recipe that my dad taught me when I was a kid. And I, you know, when I got home, I'm like, hey, mom, I'm like, hey, dad, we like won the sausage recipe. Yeah, yeah. He's like, and he starts laughing, and he's just like, "Oh, people like that stuff," you know, like <clears throat> it's it's very like it's very humbling, um, you know, like we we had these uh, this crew from CNN uh, uh, yeah. from show came in, and United Shades of America, yeah, yeah, Kumal Bell, and they were yeah. really really great, and and it's it's super funny, but you know they'll be gone, and my parents will be like, "Oh, cool," like they go back to normal life, you know, um, you know, it, it is funny though. My mom says at church like. A lot of the moms come up to her and goes, "Is your son? I saw your son on the YouTube. You know, like they like saying that to her, or on the Facebook. You know, like my mom doesn't speak English, but she knows how to say YouTube and Facebook. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely, like they, she, uh, I, it's it's very humbling because the, the thing that they say, my mom always says, is like we just want to help you. Like we just want to make sure that, like we just want to help you. And it's funny because like. I entail is like I want to tell your story. Like this is not about me. This is actually about you guys. Uh, so yeah, I mean they they're really good about it. Like my mom knows how to work the camera pretty well now. She knows she like you know like when uh, we just got done shooting a series with, for PBS and she was like, oh yeah, when they come in, this is the demo one. This is the one I already made. And they'll she know shoot this and well they want this angle. And she's like she's like directing she's half a of pro. it. Oh, it's super funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like some of my aunts will come over. My aunts will come over too, and they'll somehow all be wearing pearls and have their makeup on randomly sitting around the house. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned that I have a lot of family members that show up at the house randomly when they're like cameras around. That's it's it's super interesting. I'm they like, make oh. so much food too. Oh my yeah, goodness! Like, because yeah. I, as I said, I was like trying to watch everything that you had done, and I was like, how many times do they have to make this massive spread of food? But it's just, yeah. it feels wonderfully generous. It seems. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the way we do it. You know, it's it's very funny too because in the Hmong tradition, um, if you're the host, you don't eat with the guests. Oh, you okay. you let the guests eat first, and then whatever's left, you you kind of you back clean up basically, you know. And so I remember uh, when one of the shows came over, my my they wanted to interview my parents while we we're eating together, and I knew that my, I looked at my mom and dad; they just looked uncomfortable. 
Like, they're like, why isn't the camera guys eating? Like, like and they were trying to give plates up to like the camera guy, the production. So they had 10 people in the house, and like, they had producers and production guys, camera guys, you know, sound guys. And like, my mom was like passing plates out to them, and they're like, we're working, we can't do this. We and, can't eat right now. Yeah, <laughs> and she was just like, why aren't they eating? And I'm like, mom, this is a, we're gonna have to fake this a little bit, you know? <laughs> and it's so funny too, because like, they were just standing, and I knew that they just looked uncomfortable because they're like, we don't do this. Like, the guest always has to eat first. You know, and I think that that's, again, that's all part of Hmong food. Yeah. Like when we say that Hmong food is a philosophy, from the moment you walk into my mom's house, I don't care if you're carrying a camera or if you're just coming to visit, and the moment till you get to the dinner table, sit down on the couch, we'll talk, get to know each other, and then when you leave, trust me, they'll pack all, all the food and, you know, t- for you to take. Because it's super funny, because these people are all, all in hotels, right? My mom's like packing all these food into like Ziploc bags for them to take back to the hotel. And so the, one of the producers is like, yeah, like we got back late night, and then we just like threw some of that stuff in there, you know? And, and it was incredible. And when I saw that, it just made sense. Like, monk food isn't just about the food on, on the table. It's not about the produce and the product. It's about the philosophy. It's about that hospitality. You know, it's about that the, the guest is greater than the host. You know, it's about you putting their needs before yours. And, and, I, and I really, like, for us, it's, you know, for, for what we're doing, like, that's what we're trying to really dig into. You talk a lot about the story and the narrative in that food as well, mm-hmm. and how there is this enti- there's this whole history of how the Hmong people came to the United States that I think that a lot of people don't know. I know that I didn't know very much about it at all before I started doing all this research. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Actually, so there was something in the United States of America I wanted to reference, and um, he made the observation that in this country, whoever the dominant group is gets to decide who an American is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I have, I'm sort of curious too, like how you connect your food both to your Hmong identity and also to that sort of upper Midwest American identity. Do you find connections there? Yeah, all the time. Like I, like I said, at the end of the day, I'm a Wisconsin boy. Like. My double cheeseburger, my fried cheese curds, my custard, you know, like, like that's my jam, you know? Like, I know that that's always be a part of me, you know? Like, there's, uh, but at the end of the day, it's like, uh, you know, eating my mom's hot sauce, you know? Uh, like, like, for example, uh, again, s- stop by my parents' house to drop some stuff off, and, you know, my dad just got back from the Amish farm. They butchered their own, uh, you know, their own pig, so that they're, he took the, the head of the pig, he braised it, you know, so we're eating, like, jow, and, you know, like, so basically, you know, and, and all that stuff, and, like, I get home, my mom's like, hey, like, lunch, you want something? I'm like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting down, I'm eating with them, but I'm just as satisfied if I, you stop at Culver's and get, you know, a double cheeseburger, <laughs> cheese curds, you know, and all, and all that stuff, like, I'm just as satisfied, and I really feel, and, and this is the part where I think that growing up, I always felt like you had to pick either or, mm, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what, this is my encouragement to any Hmong kid who wants to get into cooking. Uh, and I use cooking because that's what makes sense to me, you know, um, is you don't have to pick. Like there's, there's always that you pick one or the other. And, always, and then the word we always use is tradition, right? So it's like, it's traditional, tradition, tradition. And I'm like, I see tradition as an open hand, like, a, like an open and a closed hand. You, you hold on to some of the, to, to some of the traditions that, that's close to you. For example, the way that we love our, um, our guests, the way that we treat them, I hold on to that tight. Like, I, that, that's not going to leave me. But I'm open because being Hmong means you got to be adaptable to what's around you. See, our, our people are, um, you know, we're an... We're a traveling. We're, we're sorry. We're, we're a traveling people group. 
So we're constantly moving. And when you're constantly moving, you, have, you don't have the time to really like, put roots in the ground. So for example, like, I remember thinking about this uh, in my college years, and I was kind of, like, kind of brought me to tears, but I, I would go, like, you know, like uh, my buddies, they lived in Hudson, and I remember we, we drove up to Hudson, uh, and we kind of hung out for a weekend, and, and there's all these streets there that were named after like his great grandpa and stuff like that, you know? Mm. So they live on the street that's like with their last name. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, man, like, I don't know what that feels like. I don't know. All I do is hear stories of like the old country, but, and and I remember I I would feel very embarrassed, always ashamed. Like, Oh, like we don't have roots here. We don't have roots here. And this, this aha moment clicked when, um, when, when I think about, uh, what my mom and dad has gone through. So, so you know, if you know anything about the Hmong people, um, the way that the the um, the you know, like the U.S. like the American history and Hmong history intervene or you know cross was because of the Vietnam War. So the, the U.S. government wasn't allowed to have boots on the ground. So what ended up happening uh, in, during the Vietnam War wasn't allowed to have boots on the ground, but they needed to get into Laos somehow. So they brought in military advisors, uh, CIA, U.S. government. They came in, and they hired out the Hmong people as um, paramilitary troops. And, um, and they, would go to these, they would go to the villages and say, hey, if you are of able body, fighting age, boy, man, like join up the fight. And they were young, like Yeah, 12. so my dad joined when he was 12. Yeah. So um, uh, it's funny, or not funny, it's, to me it's really interesting, is like when, when, when my mom would tell stories of these... Um, of the, the helicopter coming back with bodies of, of you know, of, of slain soldiers. And it was just these, like, kids. It's like, you know, 12, 13-year-old kids. And she even said that in their village, they would be very saddened if, uh, if, uh, um, if a boy was born because they knew that eventually he'd have to go to war and die. And so they would, they would cry when, when you had a baby boy. Um, so, <clears throat> so that's why in our culture, there is this, there is this, I believe right now, there's a, there's an unhealthy um, 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 liking of of the of um, Hmong, you know, like Hmong boys, like the, like almost like um, they they favor the boy over the girl. I mean, you hear a lot of that. There's been um, there have been some really incredible Hmong artists who who've done some um, some plays and they they've done some uh, spoken word about that, where where Hmong boys are kind of given this stature, this higher stature. Mm-hmm. And if you follow the history back, you realize that. Back in the you know in the sixties, having a boy meant yeah he's probably cursed he would he would probably end up dying during the war, and so part of it so with all of that happening, uh, my dad joined up, um, and then after the war was over oh there was like this kind of unofficial official deal that was made that said if you fight with us you get free citizenship you can come to America, and so that's why everyone fought up you know everyone you know said hey we, we want. Um, the U.S. pulled out after the fall of Saigon. Everything, everything went down to fall of Saigon and left the Hmong people behind. And then the Northern Communist Party came through and genocide and slaughtered all our people. And then all the Hmong people, majority of them that lived in Laos at that time in the hills, had to escape to Thailand. So, um, so they became refugees in Thailand. Well, Thai, Thai, the, the Thai government's like, hey, man, like, we're neighbors with Laos. We don't want to cause any trouble, so we don't want to accept anybody. So then Thai neighbors were like, we, we're, not, we're not a safe haven for you guys, so you guys, so then all these, um, uh, all these like uh, non-profit, you know, uh, NGO groups started, you know, being, uh, started coming in, um, and uh, the Salvation Army, all those, started setting up these refugee camps in Thailand, and so to get across, you had to uh, trek through the jungles um, for months, 
Uh, you had to use the cover of night. And then once, and that's just to get from the hills down, from the mountains down to the lowlands. And once you get to the lowlands, you got to cross the Mekong River. The Mekong River is the 11th largest river in the world. It is a high, rapid river. The Hmong people were mountain people, so we don't really interact with water. So not a lot of our people knew how to swim. So it was literally, you get in the water, you find some kind of flotation device, you, you, you strap all your children to you, and then you cross. And then you pray that you get to the other side without any of your kids falling off. And many people died that way. And so my parents did that. They ended up in um, a refugee camp, uh, Vinai, one of the biggest refugee camps in uh, Thailand. From uh, 75 to 92, 55,000 people went through there, and 90% of them were Hmong people. And that's where they met. And then that's where you know they, they met, got married, and then had a bunch of us. And then in 88, we got sponsored by um, our uh, grandparents who were in the Twin Cities. And then that's how we came to America. So, 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 so to me, that's my story growing up, right? Pretty simple. But then when I started realizing, like, well, as a kid growing up, those are like the, our bedtime stories. Like, yeah, this is what happened. We're like, oh, okay, that's normal. I always, like, as your kid, like, you just think that's normal. Like, oh, I guess that's normal. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and you hear your friends are like, oh, we have a cabin and a houseboat. <laughs> Did you play t-ball growing up, yeah? And I'm like, what's t-ball? <laughs> we went to the farm and killed chickens, you know? Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, that's weird. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to go sit in my corner now. Uh, <laughs> and and I'm, when I understood the depth of the story of what my mom and dad did, when I understood, when I started realizing like, who my father was, and when I heard my grandma speak about the things that my father did and sacrifices that he made, um, and I, I was, um, it, you know, there was an interview with my mom and, and my mom and dad, and the interviewer asked, um, what was your thoughts on... Uh, to my mom and dad, they asked, uh, what, what was your thought of the dream of America? And, 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 and my mom couldn't answer that. My dad couldn't answer that. Because the idea of dreaming didn't exist for them. It was survival. So it's very interesting. I think having privilege, you have the ability to dream. So one generation of our people had to survive so the next generation could have the ability to dream. Like, that rocks my world. Like, like I can lay in bed and I can imagine what the brick-and-mortar restaurant that I want to build looks like. I can imagine how the tables are going to be. I can imagine the service. I can think about the cocktail program. I can think all these things where I'm like sitting there dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. And, and what brings me back is the moment when I realize I can only do this because like my mom and dad couldn't and they had to survive and then they had to do things that was unspeakable. They had to, they'd sacrifice so much so I can lay in bed and think about how to, to build this dream of mine. And so the moment that that started hitting me, it, it changed. Because the one thing that I started realizing is that when somebody, when you realize that somebody gave up their life so that you can have life in the full, it changes the way you talk to people. It changes the way you interact with people. It changes the way you care about people and changes the way you love people. And for me, it changed the way I cooked. So life is pretty simple for me now. It, it breaks down to this. It's, it's, I feel like I, I trimmed all the fat. You know, like Life is pretty simple to me. It's literally telling the story of my mom and dad. And so every dish that's on our menu, every dish that we put out, everything that I put out, that, that, you know, that we get to do, or, you know, or every time there's a camera and we, we get to demo something, like it's from my mom and dad's table. And I, I want them to follow that. I want them to talk about, well, why, do you, you know, why do you make this you know, smoked tomato you know, hot sauce? 
because that was the hot sauce my mom would make for us, and it was always on the table, and you could stick your rice in it, and it was our snack coming home. You know, um, that we, we have this Kaoseng noodle. It's, it's, it's a very simple noodle dish. Um, I, I, growing up, I hated it, because I knew that when my mom pulled out the noodles, that meant there was nothing left, right? And it was just like clean out the fridge kind of dish. I don't know if you guys, you guys know what I mean. Like, yeah, so I hated it. I was like, ugh. You know, and, and every time I did that, it meant that there was not a lot of meat left, too, because it was like, it's all a lot of vegetables, not a lot of meat in there. I was like, ugh. But it's one of our best-selling dishes. You're like, you know, and, and people go crazy about it. They're just like, what is this? And I'm like, I was like, that's my childhood, man. That's my pain. <laughs> you know, but, but it's, it's so funny because, like, when I tell my mom, like, yeah, mom, like, that's one of the top-selling dishes, she laughs because she's like, oh, wow, that's, like, kind of our, you know, mix-everything-together dish, you know? Right. And, and so... But then I want people to know that. I want people to understand. Like, I am very adamant about um, people understanding that, you know, what we always say with, with our food is every dish has a narrative. If you follow that narrative long enough and close enough, you get to the people behind the food, you know. And once you're there, it's actually not about the food. It's about the people. And that food is the catalyst into cultivating great relationships. And that's what my mom and dad taught me. And that's what we get to do, um, and, and so it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with, you know, trends. You know, it has nothing to do with, oh, like, you know, I'm going to, you know, try this new foam, lavender, blah, 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 you know, kabucha, whatever. Throw all the trendy words out because trends come and go. They, you know, they, they, it's a roller coaster. But, like, you're not going to tell the story of my parents better than I am. You know, like, you, you, you want to you know Hmong food? Know, know the Hmong people because our food actually tells the story of our people. Because no matter where we go, like, for example, you know, like, like we were saying in the beginning, we said the people, like the Hmong people in Fresno and Sacramento cook differently than the people in, like, you know, the Hmong people in Arkansas. Why? Because of the produce and product that's around them. That's part of their story. And you, you get to see that as they get to, you know, uh, weave this. I call it like our cultural DNA yeah. is intricately woven into the foods that we eat. And so we get to tell that story. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. You have become this kind of ambassador for Hmong food. Oh. You know, really, truly. And, and it's like, and, and I wonder, do you feel complicated about that at all? Uh, well, here's the deal. Here's the <laughs> Facebook, people can write a lot of things. Um, no, uh, I, I, you know, I'll be very honest. Uh, I, I forgot who. Um, Mecca Boss is a food writer from the Twin Cities. She's a sweetheart. I love her. Uh, one of the I stories, read her stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She, one of the things she wrote, and a lot of my college, you know how to be humbled. You know how to get to get humbled. Get your college friends around you because they remember. <laughs> You were just this doofy little freshman kid, like, you know, wanting friends. So they'll remind you that who you are. But anyways, my buddies loved it because they all, like, cut it out and plastered it on my... But he, she, she wrote this really beautiful story. Um, I think it was, like, top ten, like, interesting people in Minnesota or whatever. And mm. she, she wrote this story. And the, and the title for, uh, for us was uh, the, um, the Hmong Emissary or something like that. And let me tell you, my friends 
wanted me my buddies wanted me to remember here they're like oh royalty you know <laughs> you know um and and that kind of started this and i, I was really like ah oh, man like i just kind of want to do my thing like i want to do my thing i don't want to whatever you know but one of the things i realized is that like there there has to come there has to come a, a responsibility where, where you were like hey like this is not what we chased for this is not what we were looking for but um you have to be able to take all these different, you know, um, all these different criticism, all these different comments, and then be able to kind of, you know, suss it out. So I did, I got a degree in interpersonal communication, and then I minored in PR and marketing, right? And uh, I that's love great. it. When I, yeah, I tell people that, and they're like, oh, that's not a culinary degree. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, so one of the things that we, in, 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 in uh, when I was going for my comm degree, one of the things that, um, in my first comm class, I had uh, CST 110. They talked about uh, the intention of the message and interpretation of the message. What is more important, the intentionality of the message or the interpretation? And what studies have shown is that it is the um, interpretation of the message is more important than the intention of the message. And so with, with us, like we're telling my mom and dad's story with this food. And we're, we're telling our, our people's story with this food. And if, if it means I have to like sit there for a little longer, you know, with somebody and I kind of explain out why we're doing what we're doing, it, it, it's okay, you know. Um, again, this whole idea of like ambassadorship or whatever, I, I think, I think it's just somewhere I'm learned to be like, okay, like let's talk it through, you know. Um, I still not comfortable with it. Like I'm still not comfortable being called chef. Like I'm, you know, like people will do that, and I'm like, eh, just call me yeah, it's okay, you know. Uh, <laughs> So I'm, I'm getting more comfortable with some of these different things. Um, but again, I've learned that um, when you have your college buddies around you, they remind you who you are and where you're from. <laughs> I remember I was uh, when I first met you at Makeshift, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. festival, and we were talking, you were comparing the dishes that you had to other things, like, you know, this is sort of like this Italian dish, or mm -hmm. this is sort yep. of like this French thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was thinking about that, but also in the context of you know, people who tell you you can only use this kind mm -hmm. of ingredient or only mm -hmm. use this kind of knife or only use this kind of board mm -hmm. because there is this sort of tension, especially for, you know, quote unquote, mm -hmm. third culture kids, right? Mm -hmm. Who are, you know, first generation, you know, sons and daughters of immigrants and um, to say like, this is how it was traditionally done. This, But, but you know, we're not talking about quote unquote authenticity to any one monolithic thing but i wonder how you respond when when maybe people say well this isn't how like i'm Hmong and this isn't how my family made it or um or but you know if you, if you compare it to an italian noodle dish then you're you're devaluing it in some way mm -hmm. like how do you engage with those kinds of conversations yeah we we get that a lot um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure and you know what's what's really interesting or what's really cool is being confident in in, in what we're doing um so for example um when we make lob, or sometimes called larb, but it's really lob. When we make lob, um, my mom, what she would do is she would toast, um, uh, she would soak some uh, sweet rice, and she'd toast it until it's like very dark, uh, like very, uh, uh, and then uh, she would put in a pestle and mortar, and she'd grind it in a pestle and mortar, uh, by, either by hand. And, and to make like a pint of it takes like half an hour. Well, I showed her this incredible machine called the Vitamix. And I remember I brought the Vitamix home. I'm like, Mom, this thing's like 30 horsepower or something. I don't remember. And I'm like, watch this. And I put this all this in there, and I hit the button. It took 30 seconds. And she goes, I made that much in 30 seconds? And I'm like, Mom, 
Like, and I jokingly said it, I'm like, you didn't cross the Mekong River for us to come here to America to use a pestle and mortar. Like, this is technology, you know? This is technology. Like, this is America. This is why we came to America, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, and I remember I kept thinking, is this lab less Hmong? Because oh, we right. didn't use a pestle and mortar and we use a Vitamix. Is this, you know, like, is this dish less Hmong because we used an electrical rice steamer instead of the old school rice steamer? And, and I, I think that if you get so caught up in those small, minute details, you miss the point. Mm-hmm. You, you miss the heart of what the food is about. And, and, and I think that once you miss that, then, then it's like, forget about it. You're, you're, you're done. See, what, one of the reasons why I compare foods to different kinds of you know, food from different kinds of culture is that you got to cross that bridge somehow. Right? You got to cross that bridge and talk, talk, use their language. So again, it's, it comes back to my, to my comm studies. It's using their, um, using their uh, kind of coding to understand what it is. So for example, um, when we do, like, when we do uh, like, a, like, a, like a lob and we put it in a lettuce, you know, people like freak out. They're like, what is this dish? And I go, think of it, like when we use chicken, I'm like, think of it as like a Southeast Asian chicken salad in a lettuce wrap. And then it's like, you know, everyone's like, oh my gosh, I know chicken lettuce wrap. Right? Like, like, right? Like, you say chicken lettuce wrap, like, people will buy that. But if you say, you know, um, you say, you know, um, you know, chicken lob, people will be like, what, what? Like, somebody even were like, a, a lamb? Like, how do you do chicken lamb? And I'm like, and so, like, does that make sense? Like, so being able to communicate with people again and, and just saying, hey, like, I'm going to use something that you normally understand and I'm going to use this and find that there's actually this connection. And that's why I would say that food is a universal language. It is a language that we can use. Um, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, your background. Good food is good food. And I think that if we can like, get beyond that, you know, because I know that um, the one question we always get is, is this spicy? You know, like, is this hot? Like, I can only do, they always call it like Minnesota spice, you know, or like, we, we can only do Minnesota Norwegian spice. spice. That's yeah. charming. And, and it's always like, you know, it's, before you ask, is this spicy or like, why is this spicy? Um, you, you should ask, like, what is the point of peppers? Why, why, why we use peppers in our ingredient, uh, in, in, in our food? You know, so, like, again, like, again, these are these stories where if you look deep enough, if you take your time, you kind of understand people through the foods they eat. Speaking of spice, yeah. <laughs> I would like to know whether your parents know that you call it the tiger bite sauce. Like, yeah, do you... I know. Can you tell me the story of... English, so... <laughs> can you so, tell us the story of tiger bite sauce? Yeah, so we, uh... So when you grow up as uh, a monk kid and you grow up in elementary school where there are boys who are like, oh my gosh, you speak another language? The first thing that majority of boys that find out that this other boy can do another language was teach me some swear words yeah. in your language. Right? <laughs> I, I'm 35 and I still meet grown men today <laughs> who go, hey dude, <laughs> hey bro, uh, I had a home friend uh, I grew up with and uh, he taught me these words and he'll go off and I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, he, he'll just start saying these words and he's like, <laughs> you know, like, look what I learned. And I'm like, you're a grown man. You have children. Like, you know, like, like you wear a suit to work, dude. Like, why are you saying those things, you know? And, um, and so, so for, for, for the, the, we don't really have like swear words. We have more of like curses. And, and until today, like in Hmong, I still can't say it. I can say it in English. So the, the English translation is tiger bite, you know? Like that's what it translates to. 
Um, and, and it's kind of a joke with a lot of our, you know, a lot of the English-speaking Hmong guys. Like, it's like a joke. It's like we were never allowed to say that growing up. But now if we say it in English, it's like, you know, because it's lost in translation. It's just like, whatever, a tiger bite. <laughs> you know? But it's like the ultimate curse you can give somebody. It's like I remember, like, I remember uh, as a kid, like, I think I dropped it once. And, my, like, I was punished, you know? And it's like I still can't say the actual Hmong word in my head. Like, I, I still feel that my mom would still hear it. Like, she'll be at home. Be like, she'll know. Did he say something? You know? um, <laughs> And so we were making this hot sauce, right? And, and, and so when, with Hmong food, I always say there, there are four elements to Hmong food. When you come, again, if you come and eat with us, there's going to be four things on the table. There's going to be a protein, a rice, a vegetable, or a broth, and there's going to be a hot sauce. The hot sauce is the most important element on the table because the hot sauce is like kind of the glue that binds everything together. It gives it that flavor, you know, it brings everything together. Now, now if you don't have the hot sauce on the table, sometimes dinner doesn't start. My mom, at my, growing up on my mom's house, uh, like when you heard the pestle mortar going at it, you knew you had about five minutes to get oh, ready. Oh, it's that, a cue. It's, it's, the last, it's the last thing you make. And so what's really funny is people always ask, like when, when we do cooking classes and we make this hot sauce, people are like, how long does this last? And I'm like, I don't know. Like I'm, they're like, how long can I keep it in my fridge? And I'm like, I don't know. We never get past like dinner. Yeah, you know, like yeah. so it's like I don't think it's ever been longer than like two hours. And and, and and that hot sauce is the best that way. So it's really simple. It's like stupid easy to make. You know, it's a, you know, it's it, the base is uh, garlic, Thai chilies, lime juice, um, fish sauce, and cilantro. Dried Thai chilies? Uh fresh Thai chilies. Fresh Thai chilies. Yeah. Goodness. So are you so a whole? Yeah, it's it's uh, spice to your own liking. Ah. So I, I always get the how many Thai chilies I put in there. I'm like, well, you can always put more spice in, but you can't take spice out. Right. So like, yeah. start out small, you know. Um, and then the, the cilantro itself takes a lot of that, you know, spice away. So you know, it's, I don't know, whatever. And and then and then I throw a little oyster sauce in there to give it a little bit more depth. That's what I do. My mom doesn't do it. And you do it in a pestle mortar, right? That that is like the, the like quintessential. Uh, hot sauce. We didn't have a name again, right? So cooking is all about name, right? You can't be like hot sauce, you know, like da 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 with hot sauce. So we are like, hey, it'd be kind of funny. We call it tiger bite sauce or tiger bite hot sauce. All the Hmong kids thought it was hilarious. They're like, oh, I get it. Oh. Um, all like the non Hmong kids were like, I don't get it. You know, like, oh, because like, it's got a bite like a tiger. And I'm like, yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so that's kind of how it came to be. And then eventually it's kind of just stuck. Um, it started out as kind of a joke. Like most of our, a lot of our, the, the, the dishes we do uh, that, that we kind of like, you know, dork out with, uh, it kind of starts out as a funny joke that we just do for each other. And then eventually it kind of grows from there. But yeah, that's, that's how it is. Yeah, it is a very bad curse word that I don't say. I only, I can barely say it in the English translation, but yeah. All right. I, I wonder, like, at what point did you start to feel confident or was it something that you were doing all along? Uh, to add your own twist. You mentioned you put oyster sauce, you know, in mm-hmm. yours. How, when did you start doing that? I, and, and are there times when you're like, okay, so this is how my mom would make it, but I actually like it this way better, and maybe I just won't mention it to her that I'm doing it this different way. Yeah, so my, my mom's really <laughs> open about change. Oh, good, She's okay. just like, cool. But there are like, I think five or six dishes that I will never touch. Okay. Like that, that's hers. Um, and, and when I say that's her, she literally still makes it for us. Oh, okay. Like that's, it's her, she makes it. You know, um, I, I don't touch because I, I, th- I just know that she just loves making it. And, and for, for me, it's like it's hard when I eat others, you know, like versions of that where I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's not quite right. That's cool. <laughs> you tried. Um, uh, you know, uh, so 
I think that for me, a lot of what we're doing too, what we what affects what we kind of do is like I would say that it's not ingredients; it's more technique. So, um, like for example, I grew up cooking in a lot of French restaurants. So it's it's a lot of you know like like hard searing and you know and then you you know you finish with like pan sauces and stuff like that, you know. So so like using different techniques. Um, uh, I think that. You know, even the way that we do, uh, like the way that we grill our pork, you know, a, a lot of it, the, the technique is like kind of how my father taught me, you know, so it's like almost like a half smoked pork, you know, then you finish it off, you know, hot on a hot grill with a, you know, with a sauce, you know. God, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sick of pork. I'm not going to lie. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm just like, oh, yeah, it's like salad, sure, vegetables. Yeah. You mentioned uh, uh, teaching and teaching classes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what are some of the most common questions that you get in those classes? Oh, man. Uh, we get anywhere from – so I'm a cook at heart, so I don't really do, like, measurements. I'm just like, eh, whatever. Right. Whatever, you feel good. Um, you know, one thing I really find out with like human nature, our whole life has been let us make our own decisions. But I found out that in cooking classes, people are like, no, you got to tell me like what to do. And we're like, it's interesting. Like as kids, we're all like, I want to do this. And now it's like, no, please tell me everything what to do exactly. So I think we get a lot of, um, of, of questions about, oh, like what brand should we get? You oh, know, yeah. oyster sauce, fish sauce. Like um, where can I get this ingredient? You know, I think there's a lot of fear of like... Um, I'll be very honest. I think I, I've had you know some uh, some people that we've taught classes for, uh, do classes with, and they go, "Hey, like, um, how do you uh, like you know which you know which Asian market should I go to you know and stuff like that." So it's just more a lot about product, you know, and, and the quote unquote I think like the quote unquote like stuff you can't just get at festivals or whatever you know. Right. So. I think I was I was doing a a year or two ago I was cooking through a blue apron recipe with a friend mm-hmm. and it was for like risotto or something that I made a million times and I was like, "Oh, you can just, you know, do it this way." And she's like, "But that that's not what it says on the yeah. and, and how much salt do I put in? It doesn't say how much salt." And it's like, "Well, mm-hmm. taste it. How much salt do you like?" Yeah. Right? And it and it's that nervousness like I'm going to get it wrong. Yeah. And, but like what is wrong? Like, yeah. how are you defining wrong? Do you like how it tastes? Yeah. It's your food, yeah. <laughs> you know, in that case. You're I cooking for yourself. One of the things that, like, and this is, like, if there's one message I can get to everyone, it's this. It's interesting because when you're, like, for example, you're cooking for, for like, you're hosting a party. Yeah. I have had so many friends who are stressed out because it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't get this recipe right. I have friends coming, like friends coming over. We're doing this party, and I can't get this recipe right, and there's stress. And again, like I said, you're missing the heart of it. Mm-hmm. The heart of it is not about getting the recipe right; it's about having the people come in. So one of the things that, like for us, that what we're really, what I'm really trying to do is get people to get away from the measurements, from the cookbooks, from the instruction, and and really realize like. Why, like, go back to it. Why are you putting together this big, like, you know, pot of pho, or, or, or if you're making this big bowl of, you know, um, curry? Like, why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you know there's like that, that there's a need to just do this, or are you doing this because of the community that you want you want people to bring in? Like, you want people to bring in. And if it's that, do you think that if your curry is off a little bit, do you think that people are like, I'm out. You ruined community. Like, I can't believe it. Like, we'll never be friends again. Like. It's, it's ridiculous, and, and I, I, that's one of the things I really learned. It's that we get so caught up in the small, minute details that you forget why you're actually doing it, and that's why I love Hmong food, because Hmong food is simple. It's simplistic. 
Because if you look at our people, we had, like my, my mom would talk about, she said, we had a fire in the hut that they built. There was a fire. It was a big kind of pot on top of it. And you stewed some kind of proteins. You had rice and then you had your hot sauce. And he's like, that, that's all we did. And, and, and it was just this ability to gather around and eat together. And it was this moment that we can rest together. And, and to me, that's the heart of Hmong food. And, then, and that's what we want to help create. So, we, so here's what I always say. I want to be able to take my mom and dad's legacy and be able to instill that to people who come and join us for dinner so that when you go back to your home, like you're not thinking, hey, let's go to, you know, like Union Hmong Kitchen for dinner or let's go to, you know, or whatever, you know, let's go to the restaurant. I want you to recreate that at your house. And I want you to knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, like, we have some chili. Do you want to come eat with us? Like, that's the heart of it. And that's their legacy. So, if, so one of the greatest things is to hear people go, I, you know, we came out to eat. It was amazing. We had such a great time. And we went home and we, you know, made this, you know, dish, which is like one of my mom's dishes. And we can gather people around. And to me, I'm like, that's their legacy right there. Like, it has nothing to do with like being fancy or some big fancy award. It's, it's their legacy. And I think that's something that it's hard to try to explain to them because they're like, oh, it's just food. And, but for me, it's like, if, it's, like, if it's, it's like a secret inside where I smile about it. I'm like, yep, my mom and dad's legacy, all the way from the hills of Laos, and everything that they've done, every sacrifice they've made, everything that they've given up for their children so that the children can dream, their legacy is, you know, living in South Minneapolis. Yeah. I know you just said that you want people to get away from, you know, cookbooks and recipes and things, but <laughs> the obvious question that I have is, would you ever write a cookbook? Uh, Are you working on a cookbook? I don't know. Like, we, we've had a few offers. I, we, so right now, we, we're, we're in the process of um, putting together a brick and mortar, and that uh, is a headache in itself. Oh, I'm um, sure. It, yeah. it is, and, is and, and, I, and I think that when times get hard for it, I remind myself, like, this is an homage to my parents. So it's like, look, I, I can do this, you know. Um, feeling, I feel alone a lot. It's just like, because you have all these ideas and, like, how you want to do it. Um, so, uh, you know, actually, I, I do want to do a cookbook. I want to involve my parents. But I don't want it to be a cookbook. I've talked to people about this. I don't want it to be a cookbook. I actually want to be their story and, and see how food revolves around it so much. And so, uh, you know, one, one, of the, one of my favorite food writers, he's a sweetheart, and he's awesome. You know, I'm just waiting for him to get done with his book. I always remind him, like, get done with your book, okay? Hurry up. Because, <laughs> like, I want you to write it. I want to know who this is. Yeah, uh, Stephen, Steve Hoffman. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, so I remember, I, you know, he's out in France right now writing his memoirs or something. I'm like, can you just get it over with? Be done. Like, hurry up. Get over. Come on over here. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's something that I, I would really love to get down on um, paper for, you know, for them. And it tells that whole, their whole story. If you weren't a chef, what would you do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's, I feel so lost in it. Um, actually, I started out in college. I, I, um, I, I wanted to be a teacher. Um, yeah, so I went to UW Cross. Uh, I was education. Um, uh, you know, I went to UW Cross because they had a good football team. I wanted to play football. I'll be honest. Like I'm 18 year old kid, right? That's all I really think about. Uh, and so, yeah, so I was a I was a phi ed major for a little bit, and uh, I just realized, man, there's a lot of red tapes for teachers. Like for those who are teachers out there, it's amazing what you guys go through. <laughs> it's crazy. And I remember I started talking to my counselor. I'm like, wait, what? Like I got to do what? I got to take what class? I'm like, how does this even work? And I don't know. I just had, I was like, I don't know if I can do this, you know? And so, yeah, but I, I would, I always wanted to be a teacher. I always loved coaching. Um, 
uh, it's, it's, you know, for me, um, I, I don't have time for it, but like coaching sports would be super fun. Like, you know, I love yelling at people, you know, throwing stuff. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you seem like a guy who says yes a lot. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I so appreciate that you said yeah. yes to this and this has been really wonderful, but I wonder, um, what, in addition to the brick and mortar, mm-hmm. what are you, what have you been saying yes to lately? Yeah, they're they're just um, there are like different charities we work with that are like super close to my heart. Uh, different uh, groups we work with. Um, one of them is HAFA, Hmong American Farmers Association. So it's a nonprofit group up in the Twin Cities. Um, um, HAFA, yeah, okay. Hmong American Farmers Association. So basically, it's uh, man, I hope I don't butcher it for them, but it's about 130 to 140 acre uh, plot of land, and it's broken into different different acreage and different Hmong farmers can come and farm it. And so, and then what half does is they, uh, take care of all the, um, all the, everything else, you know, like the farmers can just farm, they can sell the money goes all back to them. And they say a lot of these farmers are in their sixties. So it's not like they know all these policies and laws and how to do farmer's market and all that stuff. You know, half does that. Uh, urban roots is a great one. We love, um, they do, uh, their, uh, urban farming group, um, from, uh, Eastside St. Paul and a lot of the kids, it's all kids, you know, it's all young, uh, high school kids that farm. Um, and a lot of them are, uh, a lot of them are monk kids, you know? Uh, so those two, um, and then whatever, you know, like whatever, that's kind of fun. Like once in a while we try to double up on things. Like it'd be like, oh, that's like a really fun, you know? charity to work with but then we get to hang out with all my buddies and we get to, like throw a big dinner you know so stuff like that um I try to say yes to uh but yeah lately it's been uh it's been real busy i had to, i had to start saying no and i feel really awful like it dredges on my heart like i i would go like a couple of days just feeling really bad like there's this high school where they you know in the past few years i've come into their home ec class and come in and teach them how to make hot sauce and talk to them and stuff like that and this year you just had to say no because it just didn't work with our scheduling and it's just like you know i had to move away from some of the um from some of the um uh, cooking classes that we do, you know, working with a different, uh, with the good acre. So I had to kind of move away from that just cause we're just so, it was just so busy. It's a lot what you're doing. Uh, well, you know, when you're, when you're that new kid and you're just like, Hey, I just want friends. You want to play with everyone? <laughs> yeah. After a while I'm like, I don't need friends. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here to make friends. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I did want to open it up in the last few minutes to see if there were any questions from our audience. I, because this is a podcast, I might repeat them, but you're welcome to just, if anybody has any questions. So my editor is asking (laughs) if you have a timeline, which is always a very important element for your brick and mortar restaurant. Yeah. Uh, 2020 is going to be a funky year. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So we, we, we do have a timeline, but with anything, when it comes to building, it's like buying a house, you know, you're all like, Hey, let's do this. And then you're like, Hey, the water heater doesn't work. So now it's backed (laughs) up three more months, you know, stuff like that. So with anything with restaurants, you know, it, it, I, I would love to say, Hey, like we're a year, boom, good to go. You know, but within that, um, Right now, we're working with a marketing company that's going to help us with our, uh, with the crowdsourcing. You know, so we're going to do some of that just to get you know the message out. Um, yeah. So, man, to answer your question, I would just say we do have a timeline, but it's a very loose timeline. So it's a, you know a year, twelve, eighteen months kind of deal. Um, I'm very particular about things like like I. So here's the thing: nobody ever tells you about this when it, when when you're a cook. 
they, especially when you want to open your own restaurant, nobody ever tells you about this. You have to wear like five different hats. You got to yeah. learn how to be a real estate person. You have to learn how to um, be a plumber. You have to learn how to, um, you know, you have to learn all these different things nobody ever teaches. Insurance, taxes. Yeah, all that. Like lawyers talk. I sat down with the broker, uh, with the uh, property broker guy, and like he like was spitting out all these words at me. And I was like, okay, be cool. Inside, I was like, be cool. Like, just not like, you know, like, I'm like, yeah. The MCI, I got to make sure that I take care. I'm like, I don't know what MCI stands for. You know, and, and like, I'm like Googling half the words. He's like, you know, like telling me. And, and so you, you slowly pick up a few of these things. And uh, I think that the, the more we do it, the more I get more confident in saying like, I know, you know. And so when it comes to restaurant, three spots I look for. One, big windows. Like I want a lot of big windows because as a restaurant worker, like you're like 12 hours in, right? And when you work in like a dungeonous place for 12 hours, like your soul dies. So I'm like, I want a place with big windows so then, uh, you know, our cooks can like see hope and light, you know? Uh, <laughs> it's, it is just, you know, and then I think, you know, I think of parking. We want good parking, you know? And then, you know, because like up in the Twin Cities, like, um, you know, the, the winter gets harsh. So like parking, you know, make it easier. And then, you know, we just like really want, you know, a wood fire grill because. Oh, um, yeah. Because that's where my dad taught me how to cook. You know, and so I was like, so those are the three things where it's like, you know, um, one of my uh, partners and lawyer, he's a, kind of our lawyer too. He, I'm all, I, we always battle, you know, because he's like, ah, that's going to cause this. And I'm like, ah, these are my non-negotiables. So, you know, all those little things I've learned. Does it matter to you whether it's Minneapolis or St. Paul? Ideally, I love being St. Paul, but if the price is right in Minneapolis, I ain't afraid of that. You know, like it's right now, it's all about like, Ideally, St. Paul, amazing. But if Minneapolis can you know, offer some good prices, you know. <laughs> Thinking a little long term, could you see a uh, another Union Kitchen, Union Monk Kitchen, in other places? You know, for example, Madison. Lindsay, I'm just trying to get one. <laughs> I was talking to Dave. We are hungry yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dave, who's a he's our lawyer, and um, yeah, I call him my legal aid. He's like, yeah, and then when you open the second one, I'm like, bro, I'm not even one yet, you know? We're half of one at our residency, which is like, we work out of a food trailer. It's not a brick and mortar, it's a you know, strong mud place, you know? And so I'm like, uh, I would love to come down here. I would. If, if it means working with different restaurants down here, working with different people down here, I would love to come down here. I think that um, when we were here for um, the Makeshift Fest, like, yeah. it was so cool to see some of the uh, young Hmong people come in and they were like, hey, man, we saw that you guys were coming down. You know, like, like Johnny Hunter has been super awesome to us. Like, you know, when I first met him, I was very intimidated, you know, and I was like, oh, I don't know if he'll like us, you know. But he was so open and he was just like, hey, man, come in. And he's so receptive to everything that we're doing. And so I would love to come down here. I will, you know, we, um, and then we're looking at doing a pop up. Um, I mean, in a couple of weeks, we're doing one in Milwaukee. We've done one in Milwaukee before. So, like, this area in Milwaukee, we, we would love to. That's, you know, um, if I could divide myself a little bit, that would be amazing. But yeah, I mean, I think it all starts out with like, you know, doing little pop-ups, you know, doing a little, little, little gigs to see if, uh, there's an interest and see if people like it. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming down here. This has been really wonderful. Um, were there any more questions that I missed? Am I good? All right. Thank you everybody for coming. Thank you for being here.
been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians. We get podcasting help from Eric Lawrenson, and you can get more food and drink news and features every day at captimes.com. Follow us on Facebook and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. If you like what you hear, leave us a review. It helps other people to find us. I am your host, Cap Times food editor Lindsay Christians, and my wish for you this week is a great bon me like the ones they make at Hot and Spicy on Monona Drive. Cheers! This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.